I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom and Dominion. How many can you save? Eleven species. Blue is the last of her kind. You'll never capture her. We thought you might know someone who could help. A rescue op? What could go wrong? Hey, Blue. You know me. Come with me. You know you can't stay here. Back your men up right now. It was all a lie! The man who proved raptors can follow orders. You never thought how many millions a trained predator might be worth? They're gonna sell them. Not blue. They need it for something else. What is that thing? They made it. This is the most dangerous creature that ever walked the earth. I say we shut this whole thing down. Hey, girl. You think what I'm thinking? Genetic power has now been unleashed. You can't put it back in the box. These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're gonna be here after. Welcome to Jurassic World. Believe it or not, the last time we covered a show, a full main show on these dinos, was way back in 2015, in the before times, when we talked about the newly released Jurassic World, which Sharon had not yet seen. Now, seven years later, the second trilogy is closing out, and Sharon has not seen the sixth film. But we do get to talk about the one that we like best of the three, Fallen Kingdom from 2018. And then after that, there'll be a musical break, and I'll tell Sharon all about Dominion. But we will hold back spoilers on that sixth film until then. So if you haven't seen it, you can definitely listen to this first half. Now, the middle one is the Jurassic World directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, the uh, guy behind The Orphanage, A Monster Calls, The Impossible, and apparently the first two episodes of Rings of Power, the uh, upcoming Tolkien thing. And while it's been seven years since the first Jurassic World, we can now see what the one constant figure across all three has been. If the godfather of the original trilogy, albeit a wildly lopsided one, was Steven Spielberg, who directed one amazing film and one one crappy film and then produced the third, that means that Colin Trevorrow is his equivalent for this second volley. It is more balanced since none of the films are great. Colin directed the fourth and sixth films and was a key figure in the writing of all three. I thought he was a producer on film too, but I think uh, he and Kathleen Kennedy were not on particularly fantastic terms at that point. Mm. And oh, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah. It's noteworthy that a couple of years ago, Trevorrow directed a 10-minute short called Battle at Big Rock, which, on balance, is probably the best focused Jurassic World film. Definitely worth catching on YouTube. I'm going to be playing Michael Giacchino music across this show. And because Mike has a fixation on dad jokes and puns, the first track is called This Title Makes Me Jurassic. Oh, Michael, Trevorrow doesn't deserve you.
begin at Isla Nubla again. That is the original Jurassic Park Island from film one, film four, and part of film five here. This is where we say goodbye to Isla Nubla. We'll probably never be back there because it gets swallowed up by a fucking volcano. Interestingly, they don't mention Isla Sauna in any of film four or five, but they definitely mention it in passing in film six. Yeah. So Sauna's still around. Well, no one ever says. I mean, like the the the, the Lost World bit, the site B uh, from the Lost World, mm. isn't known to the general public, though it should be, considering the shit that happened in San Diego. They mention, oh, this is the last island, the only island with dinosaurs on it. It's about to be swallowed by the volcano. That's the inciting incident. There's only one dinosaur <laughs> island. But what about that that incident in uh, the Seattle Petting Zoo area in uh, 1997? Shut up! There ain't no dinosaurs in San Diego, and there never was. That's the one. Clang. Slam. Dinosaur. Dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 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 fine. It's fine. They've got it in San Diego Zoo. They're calling it an alligator. Yeah. I think this is the one with the most recurring sensibility of he's behind you of any of the six Jurassics. Yes. I said to Sharon, uh, allegedly... This last film is the last film. Universal has said we're na- making no more Jurassics. And it's like, bitch, you know that these make you a billion bucks each. You're not not making any anymore. What you mean is that's it for the time being. And that's a promise you can at least keep. Don't promise it's over. Don't dream it's over. And then go, oh, yeah, uh, we had a whip round and we decided more Jurassics. Mm. This is a a very he's-behind-you film. The whole thing starts with a little mini-submarine looking around the lagoon where we last saw the Mosasaur drag the Irex to his watery grave, and they're looking for a tooth. The whole tooth and nothing nothing but the tooth. tooth. They just want that tooth so they can send it up to the... And it's like a a major MacGuffin tooth. Like Everyone's like, oh my God, what's going to happen with the Irex? And at the end, I don't know if you noticed, the T-Rex just steps on it and goes, fuck it, we're not doing that. Because it's it's a nice symbolic thing. And especially it ties in with one of the villains in this who's a crazy motherfucker going around collecting teeth. Well, that's very true, yeah. I suppose if it was enough of the tooth, it might have had a bit of the root left in it, in which case, yes. Gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as the mini subs sort of like gathering this thing and sending it up to the surface to be picked up by a helicopter, behind it is kind of a Mosasaur going, and it sort of opens up very slowly. And then you've got a guy fiddling with the power grid or something, and he's like, wait a second, what was that? And he looks out over the lagoon, and we see behind him there's like a T Rex moving, going, do, 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 do. Wait, what was that? And he looks behind him, nothing. Looks back to the lagoon. (laughs) These films tell us two very clear and very contrasting things. One, T-Rexes are experts at sneaking up so that they can appear at the perfect opportune moment to save the day or ruin the day. And also, T-Rexes make boom sounds as they approach you. They just boom, crash, look at the water tension. Even the first Jurassic Park had this conflicting... Stealth T-Rex and Mr. Boomy. I think there were two different T-Rexes. One of them's really good at stealth. The other one's rubbish at stealth. One of them's so good at stealth. Everybody thinks there's only one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You saw nothing. There was only one T-Rex. So, uh, after the whole he's behind you intro, we find we meet Claire again. And somehow Claire and Owen have castled, have switched places between films four and film five, where Claire went from 
business lady who's like really obsessed with like now oh, the park's running at maybe uh, 90% satisfaction like oh my god am I gonna lose my job and only really caring about the numbers and Owen's uh, a raptor trainer who's like these animals you know no one cares for them properly they're, you know, they're, they're not me. doing it right except me and he's so cool and rad and, you know, races a motorbike and, uh, you know, tells sexy jokes and is fucking gorgeous. And his sweat can make every girl in the room pregnant. And it's just, they really leaned on the 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 positive qualities for this character to the point where he actually feels irritating. Yes, correct. Uh, but now he doesn't give a shit about dinosaurs. He's like, ah, they should all be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Claire is now a dinosaur rights activist, like phoning up... Uh, Senators and going, so can I have your... I'm looking for your support in the uh, big vote on whether or not we we kill all dinosaurs or not. Mm. And, like, she's got a little office working with her there, and and everyone's sort of taking part. They do continue that on to film six, where she's actually busting little dinosaurs out of uh, captivity. Mm. And... um, Yeah, Claire has now become someone who loves animals. Mm. And it feels like we missed her arc there because that could have been an arc in any of these three movies and it's not there. I get what you mean. I do think it makes sense that they have castled in terms of their attitudes to the dinosaurs because there's a conversation that they have quite a way into the film where everything that went wrong in Jurassic World... Film 4. Film 4 they both feel responsible for what went wrong. Mm-hmm. So that they would completely change their tack and take the opposite approach, overlapping in the process. It makes sense, but make it robs sense. us of some we of the drama that we could have gotten. Yeah. Yeah. And also, if you, drama. if you take away Owen's caring about animals, mm. he's just a guy What's who's left? really good at fighting <laughs> and climbing. Yeah, uh, and he doesn't even go back to the Navy. He's just trying to fix up his cabin. Yeah. So who's paying you for that, Owen? Uh, so he's a cynical bum. Uh, but a couple of uh, co-workers of Claire are uh, Danielle Pineda Azia and Justice Smith as Franklin. We may, You may have seen them in such uh, TV shows as the live-action Cowboy Bebop as Faye mm-hmm. and the wonderful Detective Pikachu never getting a sequel where he plays Tim. What do you think about these two? They're great. They feel like side characters. They are. And they don't get enough screen time. They don't. And we don't get to see enough of who they are as people. They are largely, I wouldn't go so far as to say entirely comic relief, but they're kind of... Franklin, I feel, is. He's a jittery guy, and then he gets kind of taken out of the... uh, No, he is still there, but their their presence is far less known throughout the second half. By that argument, then, I would say that Zia is comic relief as well, because she is primarily there for people to shout insults at her and her to say snappy things back. Hmm. I mean, she's comic relief, but also she cares about the animals. So it's like, as long as one other person cares about the animals, because Franklin don't. Yeah, he's there for tech reasons. I think he's there because he can go... (gasps) Pretty cool, but um, but yeah, we we really could have done with. They're both good performers, mm-hmm. and I had no objections with what they did with the material that they were given. But I would definitely have liked to see more character development. But then I would have liked to see more character development in Claire and Owen, and we didn't really get that either. No, we did not. Both Zia and Franklin turn up in film six for a hot minute, but they are entirely there so that Claire can declare her character 
to us. They are wallpaper in the Clare House. Uh, we're also introduced to Geraldine Chaplin as Iris, uh, and she is the Mary Poppins of a grand stately mansion belonging to the partner of the original John Hammond, mm-hmm. who is a sad, bedridden old uh, ex-scientist who uh, really wants to protect the animals and specifically invokes Richard Attenborough's last lines from uh, the second film, uh, Lost World. These creatures require our absence, which always felt like it was invoking uh, Dickie Attenborough's brother, David Attenborough, who has been campaigning for fucking years. Could we please do something about our planet? We're fucking it up, and just pretending that it's not happening is not going to help us. Sir Ben Lockwood... Uh, is very much sort of coming at this from I've got one I've got a few months even left to live, uh, and he's dying of a non-specific disease. Mm, I believe he has cancer. Okay, uh, and uh, he just wants to kind of get the uh, animals off this exploding island before it uh, is destroyed, and has arranged for holding cells for them in the basement of this giant mansion. And this precipitates one of the reasons I really like film five versus films two, three, four, and six. It's a gothic survival. Now, this is a very specific thing to me, but when they go running around in this gaunt old house with many, many flaws and secrets that actually looks not a million miles off of a converted and uh, a bit safer version of Crimson Peak, Allerdale Hall, mm. it's got that verticality to it, it you know? It does, yeah. Uh, and it has a feeling that they've turned it into a dinosaur museum. Yeah, and you've got shadows and you've got locked rooms and keys, and in the basement you've got a secret dinosaur laboratory where the actual villains are hatching their actual plans and you've got a little girl scurrying around in the dumb waiter and then a girl Claire called Claire who she's is trying to keep her alive and sort of make friends with it's Resident Evil 2 mm. and Resident Evil 1 dinosaurs so like it just keeps ticking all of these boxes for me in terms of what is appealing to me personally so once we get past the sort of reiteration of the lost world where these wicked poachers are just like i don't care about dinosaurs pew pew and then they get them off the island it suddenly turns into a jurassic park that hasn't really happened before yeah and also, won't happen again the gothic one with the gothic theme it's got that deep dark family secret that Bingo. weaves into what we're actually seeing happening yes which again fits with all the resident evils and i i love the fact that Bayona, who did The Orphanage, one of the greatest gothic ghost stories ever, (laughs) totally is wheelhouse. I was almost, no, I was genuinely saddened when everyone rejected this thing. Like, I don't ever speak to people who are like, you know, that film five is legit. I wouldn't say it gets to the level of legit, but it's got so much more in it. And there's so much more love coming from Bayona than Trevorrow, who I take to be not exactly cynical, he, his heart is there. It might be in the wrong place. And he's a fucking buffoon when it comes to actually creating and writing characters that talk like human beings. Whereas Bayona can sometimes get it a bit more out of them, even though Trevorrow did, of course, write the script for this. So, to my mind, Bayona should have directed all three of them. And also, there should only have been one of them. <laughs> and it should have been this, and this should have been good. I kind of like the idea of the Jurassic Park working and then becoming, just going completely down. But I feel like that would have worked better as 
the gothic kind of we don't want to talk about what happened in the park when we opened it up like we don't like if Jurassic World was just backstory for this that would be more interesting to me yeah yeah, if you could weave some of that into the second one so that you know why Owen and Claire are there. Yeah. I, the idea of... And Owen and Claire are haunted because it's like we saw people get eaten by absolutely. pteranodons and yeah. raptors the, and things. The idea of completely ignoring Lost World and... Jurassic Park 3. Film 3. It makes total sense to me. They do not contribute to the wider narrative at all. No, they're a you fuck about. quite easily jump straight from the end of Jurassic Park... Certainly to the beginning of Jurassic World. Yeah. Geraldine Chaplin, the uh, lady who looks after the little girl in this film, is one of Charlie Chaplin's daughters. It's kind of amazing to see her on screen. We mentioned this when we covered The Orphanage because she appears to be in almost all of Bayona's films. She was also in uh, The Impossible. She actually gave a little pep talk to a young Tom Holland. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, she was in a Monster Calls as the uh, headmistress. And she was like, what could possibly be the point of punishing you for this? She's amazing. I'm. Uh, we are so lucky to have her in these films. She has a delicacy and a heart in delivering her very clipped lines. And then she kind of gets written out of the film. I, I was like thinking back on this before we saw it again, I was like, did Geraldine Chaplin's character get eaten or something? No. She just no. gets fired. Yeah, she gets fired and leaves. Yeah. That's, that's it. Possibly because they wanted to save her from the potential of getting eaten. Well, good. She's definitely not in film six. And we also uh, meet Rafe Spall uh, as Eli, who is... I mean, he, he feels most like uh, Giovanni Ribisi in Avatar, just like non-specific yeah. greedy businessman. Yeah. The threat of we're going to use dinosaurs for military applications was sort of brewing many years before Jurassic World. It was part of scripts that got thrown out. But like that part of it wouldn't go away. It makes them feel like alien movies. It does make them feel exactly like alien movies. But also it's the, like, I always go back to that wonderful line that Laura Dern delivers. You never had control. That's the illusion. It's always the same with these these money-grubbing idiots who not only don't have control, they don't even have a good plan. Ultimately, Rafe Spall's character is like, his plan is, let's get the rarest, most valuable creatures in the world, and then auction them off. And so then we have loads of money to make things that, as Dr. Henry Wu tells him, if you sell these dinosaurs, whatever you then make will suddenly be in competition with a flourishing dinosaur market, removing their monopoly. Now, obviously, we don't want the baddies to have access to dino DNA, and we also don't want the baddies to sell that dino DNA to other baddies. But from Eli's perspective, this is terrible business. Who the hell is your business manager? Business-wise, this all seems like appropriate business. Is this business business? Numbers? Is this working? Yes. Yay! It all ties in with the... Uh, nuclear weapons parallel mm. that Ian Malcolm draws at the he- the congressional hearing at the beginning. Yeah. It's nice to have him bookending this movie because he is kind of the voice of reason. He is, yeah. This brings me back to Roland Tembo, the, you know, the, I want a buck, a male, uh, in film two, mm. because he was like, you can keep my fee. And it's like, honestly, whatever he was going to be paid is worth far less than a male T-Rex that will draw everyone to your park mm, yeah. they want to see the t-rexes like the thing always comes up why don't they just make herbivores people would then ask for 
carnivores. Yeah. They want the T-Rex. They want the raptors. Um, they didn't even know they wanted raptors until Spielberg showed them. Honestly, from a purely profit-motivated position, I don't think they do. I think they want fields of brontosauruses that they can turn into burgers. Yikes. Bronto burger, ladies and gentlemen? Yep. I think that's the way they'd go. Well, uh, the head poacher in... Oh, yep. Sorry, just to briefly go back to the whole money man being the idealist. Oh, sorry, I didn't realise that there was even that much depth to no, their well, plans. No, 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 there isn't, and that's my point. The the thing that gets missed in the setup of this, where you have this idealist who, who is, effectively gets to keep his hands clean, mm. um, is that it comes down to, but you didn't monitor things closely enough, because people like that think that all they have to do is put the money in, and then they can turn away and let the people that they've hired take care of it all for them. And that's when things start to fall apart. It's Hammonds, I don't blame people for their mistakes, but I do expect them to pay for them. Yes, John, but they have already made the mistake, and the consequences of that still need to be dealt with. You would piss off Ted Levine. He'd call you a nasty woman. I'm sure he would. <laughs> I'd call him one right back. <laughs> there was quite a bit of anti-Trump iconography in this that is now already dated. Got that throwaway phrase from Ted Levine. And Toby Jones's hair. Interestingly, both of them get eaten by the Indoraptor. Though I wouldn't advise eating Donald Trump. He'll make you sick. Actually, thinking about it, I do feel like uh, you were like, oh, get, make him into Bronto burgers. Not at the prices we pay, but if you look at how much the most expensive donut in the world costs, mm. then change that round and imagine what billionaires and millionaires will pay to eat a Brontosaurus burger. Absolutely. Swan, alligator, ostrich, there are plenty of meats out there. Yeah, but you and I can but afford be- ostrich. We can't we can afford now. Brontosaurus. We can now, but when they first came onto the market as... as you look at his lips. No, I just, I just think that Dino was delicious. When, when fancy meats in the Flintstones. come onto the market, while they are rare, mm. they will be... You pay through the ass for them, and it's a case of only the very, very wealthy get to eat this. And that's the point. They're not paying for the meat. They're paying for the fact that they are the only people who get to eat them. Mm. Turns out that covering a donut in gold doesn't make the donut automatically more tasty. You just left the wrapper on. Imperialist American pig dogs then comrades come rally as for the rest what of the, was that what a, that's the internationale your plan does not allow for the very distinct possibility that after all the tampering and gene meddling that goes on a burger beast is going to run around the complex <laughs> eating humans ah, yes that's film seven the one that they've sworn yes. they're not gonna make rand mcnally <laughs> Okay, so... Get Heston Blumenthal in there. He'll sort it out. (laughs) Also, side note, Ted Levine, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, He plays Wheatley, the tooth-collecting scumbag I mentioned earlier. And uh, these are he runs the Lost World Poachers for... Did, did you see the word biosyn anywhere? Uh, I did not. I think I saw it on a computer screen. Biosyn gets said about 100 times in film six. So if they were seeded here, then that was I because Trevor wanted to have... I assumed that there was something to do with InGen, which was who mm. D'Onofrio works for yeah. in film four. Oh, right. Okay. Well, it would appear that they are competitors to InGen. In fact, I know they're competitors to in- InGen. It what? What? Just read the name. Biosyn. Oh, I know, yeah. The, I was like, This is not subtle, is it? <laughs> so this biological synthesis. Yes, but you do realise that sin also makes you sound sinister. Mm, What's yes. wrong with that? And also, it makes you sound like you're committing a gross moral offence, which is escalated by the fact that you keep bringing up God. Written by a Colin Trevorrow. I'm, I'm going to say, again, I said this on Twitter and I said this on the uh, Discord. After The Rise of Skywalker launched... 
the Colin Trevorrow script surfaced just days afterwards. This is a now almost entirely scrapped story. Trevorrow wrote it while The Last Jedi was being filmed. Then he got fired from his Boba Fett film, and that got turned into the Book of Boba. Then J.J. Abrams called in the one screenwriter he knew could pull their asses out of the fire. Chris Terrio, writer of Batman v Superman, a convoluted mess with a metascore of 29%. And Justice League, a convoluted mess with a metascore of 39%. So pretty much none of Colin Trevorrow's ideas survived to the final version of Rise of Skywalker. A convoluted mess with a meta score of 52%. And people were passing it back and forth and going, oh man, read this. Finn would have uh, led a stormtrooper crusade. Oh, this would have been so much better than the film that we got. But I don't honestly think that leaving Trevorrow writing it and directing it would have made for much better of a final Star Wars film. I don't think it goes Abrams, Johnson, Trevorrow. I don't think that's a recipe for escalating greatness. Now, Guillermo del Toro, he could have done a Star War. Travis Knight, Ryan Coogler, Kenneth Branagh, Lord and Miller, the Russo brothers, Steven Spielberg, John M. Chu, Greta Gerwig. So yeah, they go to the island, and then they're trapped in the island. Why the hell am I in an island with Josh Hutcherson and a broken leg? Am I dreaming, I asked? It's going to be okay. We're going to get out of here, Josh whispered in my ear. Then he got up. Where are you going, I asked. It's okay, I'll be back. I'm going to get us some food and look for help. Josh, please don't leave me here. There may be snakes. I'll be back, I promised. Before I could respond, Josh walked of. The bad guys are trying to trick Claire into going with them so that she can use her handprint to get access to the hunting for specific diners, including Blue, who is the carrot they dangle in front of Owen and they say, Blue, the raptor, want she needs you. Like, if you care about Blue, you'll come with us and make sure that Blue gets off that come island. Come and save her. Come and save her. And it just seems to be a, a, a ruse so that they could get access to the computer systems that have been offline for several years with uh, her handprint, and then find Blue and shoot her with a load of tranquilizer darts. Yeah, because fundamentally, Blue is a key part of what they're working towards. They've got the DNA from the IREX. They need to blend it with Blue's DNA so that they can create a big-ass, mean raptor that will do as it's told. Mm. It would appear that Owen stumbles across the original land cruiser, the um, Ford Explorer, that falls out of the... Or falls off the dam into a tree in the original Jurassic Park, and then that wreckage on the ground is the, well, we're back in the car again, and it's rusted over the past 30-odd years. But they didn't fill in the details. They didn't show you the big wall that would, be, would have been directly behind the tree. They didn't show you the intake pipe where Alan said, but that's not what I'm going to do. They were just like, remember this car? Well, we've sort of made this clearing look a bit like that. Mm. Yeah, and those things would definitely have still been there mm. because if in the process of building Jurassic World they ignored that segment completely, yeah. they would not have gone in there and done demolishing work and then left a rusty car on the ground. Honestly, one of the best things for me about the original Jurassic World was when they went back to this old park and they were finding bits and bobs. It is very much kind of jabbing at nostalgia and they every time they want you to think about that first film, Michael Giacchino who I love, and you all know I love, evokes John Williams' score with that. Da, 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 da. But there's, there's definitely levels of accomplishment when you're doing that. They tried to do that in film three, only they copped it up royally. Yeah. 
Uh, they do it a lot more in uh, film six. Seems to be nostalgic for film four. Jurassic World. Like, remember when you saw Jurassic World? It's like, yeah. I mean, I know it is seven years ago, but I'm not wistful for 2015 because of what was coming afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Also, then you start falling into the trap of it's very difficult to make nostalgia to evoke nostalgia for things that were within the framework of the internet as we know it today mm. because nothing goes away those things are at your fingertips all the time do you remember when yes i remember when i watched it last week just to psych up for this movie mm. now it is true that no movie gets lava right you can always get way too close to it without bursting into flames but i think this might be maybe with the exception of the tommy lee jones and Haish action disaster film volcano that everyone's forgotten because blockbusters in the 90s were mostly it, this might actually be the most physics-defying lava in all of Christendom. I'll hand this one over to Jenny Nicholson, who said it best. And it's the scene where Claire and her comic relief sidekick are in this research facility, and there's like a little ping on the radar that says there's a big creature coming toward them. The sidekick is like, oh my god, is that a T-Rex? And I was immediately like, it would be really funny if it was, because... It's not that big of a tunnel. Like, I can't imagine a T-Rex crouching like it's a child in a Chuck E. Cheese play area. Like, I don't know if it could do that or what would compel it to, but the dinosaur arrives down the tunnel and it is a dinosaur that I had to look up. It's called a Baryonyx. And it starts coming forward to eat Claire and her sidekick, but then the ceiling cracks open and it starts pouring hot lava in like a waterfall, bisecting the room. The Baryonyx, instead of seeing like a hot glowing thing and being afraid of it like most animals, maybe retreating and trying to get out of the building, instead it walks up to the waterfall of lava and just sticks its face through it. It just sticks its face into hot lava. Maybe this is why they went extinct. The lava just pours directly onto its big face and the baryonyx just kind of recoils like, ouch, that's hot. It's hot on my face. Like it's boiling water, just like, ouch. That scalded me. And then it only hesitates for like one second and just tries it again. This is egregious use of lava. Yes. In very close proximity to our heroes. Fucking Owen is reeling around on the ground having been tranquilized and then these guys took Blue away. And he's doing some great physical comedy. I'm like, oh, I remember when Chris Pratt was a welcome on-screen presence. And yet, at the same time, that doesn't fit with his steely demeanour and everything else. It doesn't really, know. If you're going to have... It was funny, but it was very sort of sticking out like a sore thumb. Like, uh, Nathan Drake could do those two things, but he has to have that easygoing, oh, shit, personality, which Chris Pratt would have been more than capable of doing. Mm. It's just that they were trying to make him so not like Star-Lord that they were like, go to your really serious place. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this whole midsection of the, the uh, uh, film has got uh, like a... It's a lot of everyone off the island, but because it gets consumed by lava, I was like, oh, all my stuff was there. Like, that was... <laughs> Ila Nubla was special, and now it's gone for the purposes of this movie. Mm. And it feels like they could have said the volcano might erupt, so we're rescuing the animals, but that wouldn't have been dramatic enough. They have to be escaping from Volcano Island. Mm. And that specifically also means that a brachiosaur is at the dock going, come back, come back, while they're sailing Have away. You noticed, by the way, whenever they want to set up a scenario where there's a dinosaur that we are supposed to be deliberately, emotionally connected with, and it isn't like a named 
hero dinosaur that we do have a familiar connection with. They fucking look like Denver. Well, you know the answer to this uh, scenario, this question, don't you? Which is that uh, when the WWF, no, not that one, are trying to make people feel sorry for animals en masse, they put pandas to the front because we like pandas, we like polar bears. You are so right. There's a lot about Save the Well. There's nothing to do with Save the Haddock now, is there? We, you, you're not out there saying we're going to rescue these compies. Yes, but if the brontosauruses all die, so will the compies. It's a shit situation, but ultimately, selling people the absolute truth. You know what? If the bottlenose dolphin dies, it's not going to affect you at the moment in the slightest. The average person will go, well, that's fine then. The key element there is at the moment. Uh, but I yeah, am, no. I am very resentful of the fact that they keep feeding these poor bastards goats, which their digestive systems may well not be set up to cope That's with. true, actually. T-Rex was never fed mammals in the past. Absolutely. Probably. Hmm. Very early mammals, maybe. Maybe some sort of rat. I don't know. Goat. You, you ever had goat? Goat's tasty. You vindaloo that thing. <laughs> Again, though, if the T-Rex gets diarrhea, and she will... <laughs> it will not. You're cleaning it up. <laughs> You'll need... Well, not just a mop. <laughs> If you can imagine the dinosaur equivalent of a pilot fish, the ugliest, scariest, rottenest dinosaur ever, if that thing was dying in love, you'd be like, good, well, fuck it. Okay, I can point to that exact dinosaur in this one. It's the fucking Mosasaur, and we know that's going to be all right. I don't know, the Mosasaur has kind of a gracefulness to him, and it, like he's a big crocodile, mm. whereas the Indoraptor is the stuff of nightmares. He's like, yes, the children, the children. Like, wait for it. And he's got this big claw. And at the same time, he's got more personality than many human actors in this film. Absolutely. Also, the Irex and the T-Rex are technically I-Regina. They're girls. Yeah. They're queens of the terrible lizards, not kings of the terrible lizards. Good point. I-Regina. Rhymes with awesome. Right. <laughs> so now we're off that island and back into uh, Lockwood Mansion with all of these. Like, There's, a, there's a, actually a really quite good bit of uh, of tension in this because like some like the sequences in four I wasn't the least bit worried about or tense about the sequences in six I wasn't the least bit worried about or tense about but the framing of the sequences in five oftentimes I was actually oh that was good they went out of their way to get a practical Rex that Claire and Owen have to extract blood from in order mm -hmm. to save Blue during a, a surgery to remove a bullet yeah. and just the whole. Zia trying to save Blue and being a, a, a surgeon for, for dinosaurs. Like, you can really get behind these guys. Absolutely. There's a certain level of urgency of trying to keep animals alive. And again, the drama is infused with this sense of, but we want the dinosaurs to be okay. Even the bit where they're trying to get the blood from the T-Rex. Yeah. There was part of me that was like, if this thing goes nuts and the security guards turn up, they're going to kill it and I don't want that to happen. Yeah. Oh, and gets a broken leg. <laughs> Meh. It, honestly, it, they don't help their case by having so many detestable humans in this because it's like humans exactly. are horrible, dinosaurs are just doing what is in their nature. Yep, yep. Which means that when Malcolm does this thing about they may well be here afterwards, there's at least some people that are sat there thinking, good. Hmm. Right, now we need to talk about Maisie, who is, uh, uh, we mentioned that uh, Geraldine Chaplin's there looking after the little girl. She is one of the main MacGuffin characters in this. She's uh, Lockwood's apparent granddaughter who spends her time scurrying around in his weird private museum of dinosaurs. <laughs> Maisie is uh, an odd little girl who I immediately liked uh, because she's just sort of like trapped in here. There's like a, so much of the gothic feel of this 
centers around this little girl who's puzzled about her past, doesn't know who she is or where her place in the world is, has clearly been raised to, to be uh, intelligent and uh, to a degree very compassionate, but there's also a couple of little parts of her that are still immature and impish and, uh, and uh, like she still does push it further than she might need to. Absolutely, because she's a nine-year-old, yeah. ultimately. I, I have to say, by the way, especially considering that she wasn't in anything else before this, yeah. the actress, uh, Isabella Sermon, she is incredibly convincing. I, she's not quite Daphne Keane levels, but she's not far off. Mm, well, okay. The reason I haven't mentioned her up till now is because we can kind of talk about her whole plot in this. There are future revelations in Six, which again, I'll hold for that part of it, but... What From what you understand, who and how is Maisie? Okay, so Maisie, as you say, is introduced as being Lockwood's granddaughter. Uh, Claire is told that her mother, who is Lockwood's daughter, or was Lockwood's daughter, was killed in a car accident. And that ever since then, Maisie has lived with him and he has raised her. It later transpires that she is in fact not his granddaughter. She is a clone of his daughter and was born several years after her quote-unquote mother died. Oh, okay. So she she never had any physical contact with that woman at all. She It's just that she comes from the same DNA. Right. And this leaves her feeling, what, what does that even mean? Am I even me at this point? Okay. And uh, it leaves her sort of trailing in the wind while she's... Run, creeping around and her grandfather or father gets murdered by Rafe Spall. Like there's the, there's a really concerted bit of, uh, you know, you need to call the police boy. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be better. Like I want you to, you insane businessman who is clearly a sociopath. I want you to phone the police and shop yourself in. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's not go over there and get that phone. It's just on top of that pillow. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Indeed. I may remind you, I'm a very sick, frail man and cannot fight back. Mm, indeed. I think the there is, a, there is a point to Maisie's birth and the death of Lockwood's daughter, whose name escapes me. I don't know if they ever even say it. Um, but there is the reason that there is such a gap between them is important because it does mean that Maisie is more directly connected with the dinosaurs, with the fact that they have been brought back long after their original time on this earth has been. If there was an overlap, or even if it was a very short gap um, between the, the death of her mother and Maisie's birth, then it would have felt more organic. But putting that space means that that ethical question, should Lockwood have done this? And clearly Hammond didn't think so, because the implication is it's the thing that pushed them apart. Um, that hit the choice that he made went way beyond uh, the ethical parameters that they were working with at the time. But in his mind, it's no different from bringing back a dinosaur that hasn't been here for millions of years. Hmm. So effectively, Lockwood misused science for personal reasons. Strictly speaking, yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily call it misused, given that, that it, it is very similar to what Hammond was doing. But, well, yeah. Hammond was misusing science. Well, yeah. All right. We've established right. that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, and it, 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 what I appreciate about this film is that it does manage to... Although, 
strictly speaking, Hammond was misusing science in terms of trying to make something happen really quickly so that he could capitalize on that thing and turn it into his own personal, very controlled theme park. Mm -hmm. The misuse comes from kind of wanting to get there quickly and fast and true, first. True, But also, there and is And not a putting parallel. in enough security to prevent people from getting killed by those dinosaurs, should there be, I don't know, a power cut. Absolutely. Or a hurricane. But who's to say there's ever going to be a hurricane in Costa Rica? <laughs> at this time of year, at this elevation. Um, there is a parallel between Hammond's doing it so that he can feel in control of something that's, mm. not, in contro that's not controllable, and Lockwood... Effectively wanting to control death, death and loss. To to uh, cycle. This is why again it feels like this is a gothic tragedy. Absolutely, but it because we never really get to talk to Lockwood. We never really, we don't at all get to talk to Lockwood about his motivations because he dies before we have yeah. this. That's where I was like, no, Rafe Spall, he's got shit to tell us. He needs to discuss this. One thing I like about this film is that it sidesteps the age-old argument of our clones really people. Well, it doesn't because it has Rafe Spool going, do you know what she is? Yeah. In a kind of, yeah, but even if... He's a dick. If she gets out, she's not going to eat the tourists. Yes, but we can disregard his perspective on this because he's an arsehole well, yeah. and deserves but to Our go. heroes love the animals and yeah. he's a dick who's Indeed. like, she's a freak. But, but what I mean is... Was Lockwood genuinely thinking, if I clone my lost daughter who I loved, mm. do I genuinely get back a do-over with the daughter that I've lost? Or was he thinking, I lost her before she could have a child of her own. What I want to see is her to have the opportunity to be reborn in the next generation. Because the bottom line is, Maisie is her own person. She is never going to be that woman. She didn't grow up in the 70s. She didn't grow up with Lockwood as her father. She grew up with him as her grandfather. She's been exposed to different people in a different environment. She is a completely different person. The only thing that is that, that makes them the same is that DNA strand. After this, the uh, the bad guys are trying to auction off all these dinosaurs to a bunch of millionaires and corporations who are like, I bid $10 million for this Ankylosaurus. There's so many things we can do with that. And I did not wake up thinking I was going to be saying those words. But uh, yeah, there we go. And they're all, it's like, it's a fucking fire sale. <laughs> These dinosaurs, every dinosaur must go. Absolutely. But Rafe Spall is just collecting the dollars. And then... All hell breaks loose as uh, Owen and uh, Claire, who have been found, captured, and uh, put in um, dinosaur jail, uh, get themselves out. And Owen just like, like he lets out the head-butting dinosaur from film two, and it butts a guy, and I'm like, well, that guy's dead. His ribs just crushed his heart because this thing goes through walls, brick fucking walls, and iron barred doors. That man is a dead person, but that's fine. He was a a, a, a lackey. Like, there's one tracking shot where Owen does like four takedowns on three guys. And it's like, this is just pressing a circle over and over again to a bunch of unprepared dudes in Uncharted on easy mode. <laughs> he is just kicking wholesale ass. And the fact that they put him in a, uh, a blue uh, long sleeve uh, Henley with the uh, button slightly down and probably, I don't, I didn't know whether he had the half tuck or not, but uh, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, we don't spend a lot of time around Chris Pratt's waist for some strange Not reason. enough time. Uh, but yeah, it, it, all hell breaks out, but it all kind of recenters itself 
uh, when when the Indoraptor gets out. And the way this gets done is, remember what I told you about that? I mentioned the he's behind you situation. There's a bit of that in the middle of the film, but definitely right here, there is uh, Ted Levine's character goes back into this empty warehouse, sees the eye raptor in his cage in the middle of the floor and goes, I'm having a piece of that. Because he's already wrenched the tooth out of a poor stegosaurus. It was like, you asshole! He's, he's done it to multiple dinosaurs. We don't see him do it more than that once, <laughs> but we do see the handkerchief he's keeping all the teeth in. He's such what a, a weird dude. And yeah, so he goes into the cage and the way that Bayona positions the camera is right by the Indoraptor's head. And as he's, Ted Levine's creeping in from the top right, the Indoraptor opens his eye and looks at us and waggles his tail just to show, I'm not really asleep. And then he gets down on his knees to sort of like get his pliers around the thing. And then we cut back to the eye raptor who not only opens his eye and winks at us, but actively grins and goes, <laughs> this is gonna be so sweet. And then Ted Levine's like, what? Huh? Looks behind him, tails back down again. Mm, must have been the wind. I'm just gonna <laughs> power of three this one. And then the eye raptor gets up and goes, Aah! and it's like, I hate you, but I kind of like you because you're the most evil roadrunner eating Elmer Fudd that I've ever seen. So, like, fr immediately the Indoraptor has more personality than the Irex ever had. The Irex is mad and goes around killing Brachiosaurs. This guy is just there to fuck with you. And again, bring me the children with his talon hands. He is like a, a Skeksis. Yeah. Also, have you noticed that his size changes according to what they need him to do? He's like uh, a TARDIS in yeah. that regard. I'm calling him he. I don't think... I'm, I'm assuming that it's actually female since all of the dinosaurs that Henry Wu creates mm. are female, but there's a... There's the reason a to get Blue in is so that Blue can go, now, now, I ra Raptor, you've got to you give that man his arm back. Absolutely. Because <laughs> Blue is a mother figure, so uh, like yeah. she, she, she can apparently get the I Raptor to be obedient was one of the words that Henry Wu uses. Yeah, they, they don't just... Blue is not massively argument. obedient. Blue will do it if it suits Blue. Okay, and also, the thing that they keep missing, Blue will do it when Owen tells her to do it. She doesn't seem particularly enthusiastic about know. listening to anyone else. I don't know. Like, there are times when Owen says, Blue, you back off, and Blue's like, and what if I don't? Well, no, but what I mean is, Owen's the person who has, like, yeah. maybe a 60% chance of getting a positive So, result. really, what they need is a clone blue and a cloned, and a cloned Owen. <laughs> and you can clone all that training that and all those memories yeah, we're that gonna they had photocopy together. Owen's brain. Sorry, what? We're just going to like we're going to show the the uh, the eye blue mm. all of these v fucking YouTube videos of <laughs> Owen training raptors yeah, and go, "Ah, oh, that's pretty good." Wink, wink. Um, but see, Maisie watches like uh, when they're trying to save blue during surgery, a video of of Owen like like going, hey, how's it going to Delta or is it Echo? Uh, and uh, then pretends that he's weak by going, oh, and hiding himself behind his hand. And Delta's like, okay, a human I can kill. And jumps in to claw at his face. And he's like, aha, I was wearing a leather sleeve, you idiot. And then he does the same thing with Blue. And Blue's like, oh, come on. And Blue is basically a golden retriever if a golden retriever was a raptor. And I'm like, that's very sweet, but doesn't. It's not in line at all with the blue that we've seen as an adult. This is true. And the um, the argument from an animal 
a purely animal perspective was that doesn't set Blue up very well to be the leader of the other raptors. Yeah, the compassionate one. Because the second one. Blue exhibited any weakness, we are led to believe they would also pounce on her. Yeah. But anyway, that's either way. Totally like, it, the point. This film is very goes out of its way to go. These are the good. Like all dinosaurs are good, apart from this man-made eye raptor who's a badon. But you say man-made. Yeah, but the eye raptor <laughs> never existed. Technically speaking, neither did any of the others because they've added frogs to them. That is also true. Anyway, um, but no. That is also true. <laughs> what about... even am I? A raccoon with frog DNA. <laughs> the thing about the sizes is, there's a scene where the uh, the Indoraptor is sneaking up on Maisie, ah. and the you don't actually. I mean, I, I could have misinterpreted this because you don't see them literally stood next to each other, but going by the size of its head. And the size of its claws and hands, which it's trying to reach out it to. It looks like a Jabberwock. You can roughly sort of estimate how big she would be hmm. in comparison with this thing. There is a scene later on where Blue jumps on the back of the Indoraptor and she looks like fucking Tweety Pie up there. She is <laughs> tiny. And oh, like, look, pitties. Maisie and Blue are about the same size. How does that even work? Well... It's the first time that a Jurassic has ever fucked with the laws of physics. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe the most hilarious moment in this film is when I think Blue is downstairs in the lab, fucking around, killing scientists and soldiers. Gas tanks get punctured behind her. And then because we've seen action movies, we're like, okay, so that's going to catch fire. But clearly Blue's been watching action movies again because she's like... <laughs> Oh, gas, that's going to explode. And then she runs away from this explosion and goes, boom, out like that. And it's like, this is one smart fucking lizard bird. And does she have any other preferred genres? Has she watched When Harry Met Sally and gone, well, that's a bit dated now. Of course, a man and a woman dinosaur can be friends. Might never be cross or try to be boss, but they wouldn't do. <laughs> So, I mean, then it's just a lot of chasing around this gothic mansion. They do test out the whole... Right, the, the premise of the military thing is we point a laser pointer at our target mm. and then we signal for the raptor to go for that target and then the raptor will go for that target. Mm. But as many people have said, you know what you can also do with a laser pointer attached to a rifle? Pull the fucking trigger... And waste a bullet as opposed to potentially let like because if this person's got a gun and we saw how quickly Blue went down with one gunshot to the ribs in like a it, it got through nearly to her heart mm. that that actually makes the dinos a lot more fragile than Vincent D'Onofrio and his moronic cronies well, are. That Claiming. Yeah, that is kind Getting of... Getting some body armour. That is kind of the point of the Indoraptor. In give, the, give Blue a stab vest. The way the Indoraptor's DNA has been tweaked is to maximise thickness of hide and ability to remain aggressive and... and we needed to shoot that pressure. thing. Did, did Owen actually manage to shoot it a bit? Because he does, he, he's running around with a, a rifle a lot of the end but of they, this film. They, part of why they have that bit where they're trying to get the blood from the T-Rex mm. is so that he can make the point, you are not going to get straight through to its vein easily. You've got to you stab really it three times and then push down on the plunger. Yeah. With my little black dinosaur book. <laughs> um, and and the Indoraptor has some T-Rex DNA in it. One assumes then... Would you like some? Yes, it's... <laughs> protective hide is part of it. I still don't think it would be entirely bulletproof, but the idea is that it's when they're when they're 
pointing this laser pointer, this is not to take out individual targets. It's mm-hmm. not an assassination beast. It's urban pacification. It's you send it into a crowd and it will literally slaughter them. Really? Because um, everyone that it got pointed at in this, it didn't manage to kill, For right? example purposes. Oh, yeah. No. So at no yeah. point did it actually succeed. Well, here's the thing. Owen beats it by stepping sideways out of the way. One assumes that if you're using it in a warfare situation, soldiers could also do that. Okay, they bring this concept back for <laughs> Jurassic Park 6. I will say, so Jurassic 6, I will say a bit of what happens because it's for an action sequence and it's mm. entirely just, it lifts out of the movie. You don't need it. The beep. I've got you, boo, and now the raptor's hunting you is an excuse to get some parkour and motorbike riding stuff around uh, what looks like Tangiers from the Bourne uh, Ultimatum. And, like, multiple raptors are sicked on multiple humans of varying skill and ability, and I think 100% of them get away alive. Okay. Uh, Maybe some nobodies get killed, but basically what you're doing there is, like, uh, someone actually has to like point what is effectively a gun at Owen and go, you're dead now. And then a raptor chases him. And it's like, yeah, this is 100% ineffective. It feels like the heroes needed to say at some point, well, this is a shit idea. Like, just just say it so that the audience can agree with them and we move on. I've got a new idea. Oh, it's a shit idea. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. So they get chased around this gothic mansion. It's kind of awesome for me. And uh, they get there's a lot of bedrooms and hiding and then going into the dumb waiter and re- recreating the bit with Lex in the kitchen where she's yeah. sort of... They, they the do. Up. I will say, one of my notes was that they they re-invoke the tension from the kitchen scene in the original mm. really well. In fact, even they amp it up a little bit because it's more personal in this one. Yeah. Then we get to... like They all survive and Blue eventually saves them because... Uh, in the original Jurassic Park, the Rex went from this terrifying threat to, oh my god, the re- in the middle section when the Gallimimus are running around, the Rex is just hunting. And it's like, maybe the Rex is just an animal feeding. And at the very end, the raptors, are, who are villains, very much in that first one, they get saved from the raptors by the T-Rex, who's like, I am a villain, but kind of an anti-hero villain. Maybe a rehabilitatable villain, like in the Fast and Furious movies. Which is worth saying, because this sixth Jurassic film could... Ve- like, if you revealed that Dominic Toretto lives in this universe, I'd go, I knew there was something. <laughs> and then in Jurassic Park 2, the raptors are super villainous again. The uh, two Rexes have their baby taken away. And because they're just after, like, trying to keep their baby alive, you kind of feel for the Rexes uh, in the buck, the male, and the mummy. When it's rampaging around uh, San Diego, you're like, you know what? This is San Diego's fault. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, and then the third one, the raptors are also villains, but then there's that communication with them, with the raptor <laughs> ocarina. And the rexes are here, uh, the rex sort of is a threat at the beginning, but then the spinosaurus kills the rex, so the spinosaurus can be gotten over. But it's a not earned kill, it's a not earned match. And I hadn't watched as much wrestling as I did in 2015 as I have now. And this is like, well, the the Spinosaurus would be like Brock Lesnar turning up in the WWE and for his first fight, he kills Hulk Hogan. He literally murders Hulk Hogan. He doesn't get to walk out of the ring with cheers of people who are like, goodbye Hulk, you were our favorite because Brock Lesnar did an F5 and shattered his bones. But yeah, effectively, as of Jurassic Park 4, the Irex was, uh, in Jurassic World, was uh, positioned as the villain this time around. 
The raptors vacillated between kind of Owen's friends and maybe Owen's enemies, but then they all died except Blue, who ended up being a definite hero. And then the Rex, when she comes back at the end to fight the Irex, is most definitely, or the Regina, is most definitely a, uh, a hero. Like, because the T-Rex the doesn't kill any people and definitely saves their asses at the end. It is very much Trevorrow positioning our old favourites mm. as hero wrestlers. Yeah, and it is very important... Faces. It is very important that we have that personal connection with that specific T-Rex. She has the claw marks on her side, which uh, Owen actually puts his hand on when they're doing the blood sample scene. Mm, Just nice. to underline, this is definitely that T-Rex. Nice. How the hell they found that specific T-Rex on that whole island, I don't know. Well, she's very lucky. Yeah. It, uh, I, as I understand, this is the original T-Rex from the original Jurassic Park, still. Mm. Uh, I know that that was definitely her in the wrestling match at the end of 4. That wrestling match, by the way, our commentary on it, which you can find on YouTube with full visuals, is the best thing to come out of the Jurassic World movies. <laughs> There's the low point first. The T-Rex oh. is down and it's going to get bitten like when the Spinosaurus bit it before. Yeah. It's going to get killed. Like and you're like, too. oh my God, it's mortal. How can they possibly save the day? They are but human. And then you hear alone. Blue bursts onto the scene and suddenly you've got a raptor T-Rex tag team on the Irex. Barrels on top, it bashes the Irex on the head with a chair, it gets the ladder out. <laughs> it leaps off the Irex onto the back of the T-Rex. It's like, oh, it rides him. Yes, <laughs> it literally rides the T-Rex and it's fucking awesome. And then the Irex is down, but it's not out, and it's like, I am gonna fucking kill all of you, and it injures them both, and they, they backed it up, and it's in the corner, and it's gonna be, it's gonna take them both down before it goes. And it's backed slightly too far towards the lagoon. And then, does The manager makes his appearance. <laughs> Mesosaurus grabs the Irex by the head, drags it under the water, and it's like, <laughs> I want to get it away with it if it wasn't for you snooping raptors. <sighs> and then the raptor and the Rex regard each other in this kind of, sup, sup. Let us never speak of this again. They, they, they almost do a bro nod, don't they? Yep. Then they high five, and then they go their separate ways. And then the, the Rex stalks off to the island to do its awesome roar. And then Blue talks to, uh, you know, and then basically Blue almost like leans in and goes, Blue is home. To, <laughs> to Owen at that point. And then he runs off into the park that is now basically his no, to traverse. He looks to go back to Owen. And I think Owen says no, Blue. And then no, he just goes off. There's no room for you in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he could have said that and it would have been a great lie. I thought you were going to say there's no room for you in my life. That <laughs> actually makes far more sense. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, Blue is definitely the face in this one. Blue is Stone Cold Steve Austin back for one more up against, I don't know, who's a vicious piece of shit. Bray Wyatt. Remember him, the weird creep with the lantern? Yeah, the Irex works well. Sorry, the Iraptor works well as Bray Wyatt because he's, he's this really creepy, scary thing that's like, yes, the children. He's full on spook house dinosaur. So when Blue defeats him, it's like, my God, the stunner at the end. And it's a stunner onto two Triceratops horns. And that, that even made you go, ooh, there goes $12 million. 
So it, it 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 has like a triumphant ending where once again a face dinosaur can can save them, and and uh, six has something similar but not as good. Mm. We'll get to that in a bit. Now, let's get to the crux of this movie, and this is where me and I think Sharon and I think most of the world differ. Owen and Claire leave the button that they could press that would let the dinosaurs out while they're being gassed with hydrogen cyanide, which, if you remember from Skyfall, fucked up Silver's face horribly. Like, it's a horrible way to die. It's... I mean, it's edging on uh, death camp territory here. We're using Cyclone B to kill these poor fucking dinosaurs. And they're all dying and like, like that. And I don't think it's on purpose. I think the it's something to do with the hydrogen that got released accidentally earlier on. Right. Is combining with something that, that like they were... Uh, cyanide. Exactly, but they were keeping the cyanide in liquid form to use it in a more controlled way. Right, right. And it's so it's not an intentional it's... gassing system. No, no, it's okay. not. The, the... But it is intentional in the script. It is intentional in the script, yes. Yes. <laughs> so all the dinosaurs are, cr- are clawing at the door, gasping for life. And not even one or two people. Everyone I've heard talk about this film was like, just let them die. Let them die on the island. Let them get destroyed by the volcano. That's what God wants. Or dinosaurs uh, had their time and nature selected them for extinction. They're dangerous animals. They'll kill kids if they get out into the wild. Every single person that I've heard say anything about this film says, let the dinosaurs die. And they would also be on the same side as Owen and Claire, who are both adults, and also make that decision. They decide to let the dinosaurs die. Sharon's open mouth. I don't know what you're... I've not heard a single person say, I would make sure that the dinosaurs wow. lived. Right, okay. So, first off, Owen and Claire are not completely dedicated to this concept. They all have to die. Owen question marks it. And Claire initially wants to let them out. Yeah, Claire is very, ah, and then eventually Owen's like, no, you so can't. So they, they are, t- he, he doesn't exactly say, no, you can't. He says, you've got to think about this really carefully mm-hmm. because there will be huge consequences. However... The people but who... he's shown as a pessimist in this movie, oh, and Claire's shown as an optimist in Indeed. this movie. But both of them so he turns her into a des- pragmatist. Yes, both of them eventually decide. You know what? We can't. What it comes down to is we can't be responsible for all of these dinosaurs being out in the world. This, by the way, this was why we've held off for so many years. I needed to see film six, see the exact repercussions of pressing this button, which happens, and be able to say with confidence. I still would have pushed it, even though this ends up happening. Yeah. I don't know how well this, as a position, will come across to people in America. Because you still have bears and you still have wolves. Mm -hmm. In the UK, we used to have wild bears and wild wolves, and they used to be all over the place. But at some point, somebody decided... We can't take the risk that these bears and these wolves will kill our chickens, kill our flocks, wreck our lands, kill our children. And so a decision was made to actively exterminate those creatures in the UK. And they are now extinct. I believe there are some efforts to reintroduce wolves into the wild in Scotland going on as we speak. I'm assuming it'll be in a nature reserve so they're protected. To begin with, yeah, absolutely. But for hundreds and hundreds of years in this country, those creatures have been extinct because humans made the decision to eliminate them. And to me, that's what this decision is about. These animals, and I am 100% with Maisie, they are alive. 
And I love that her conclusion is, and so am I. Yeah, absolutely. She sees herself as, I probably shouldn't exist, but, but I, I do, do exist. Exactly. What their origins were by this stage is irrelevant. You created them. You are responsible for them. You deserve... You owe them the best shot at life that they can get. If that means herding them up and putting them in an area where they are well away from people, the whole thing with the volcano at the beginning, to me, that's a no-brainer. You pick up as many as you can, you find another deserted island... I don't know, and like Isla Sauna, a few hundred miles west. Exactly! It wouldn't even take that much fuel! Come on! <laughs> but, the, but no one knows about Isla Sauna. Indeed. But everybody in this congressional hearing is so busy arguing about, ah, oh, well, no, God made dinosaurs there extinct. There is a so. lot of invoking God in this. It, it's not... They say playing God three or four they, times. They do, and then somebody says the decision to do this in the first place was unholy or, or something along those lines. <laughs> I, you, to which you need Malcolm... To stop talking about God in the context of this. At which point Malcolm is like, should we just bring this back down to... That's, like, belief's absolutely fine, but we've got to deal with the tangible stuff we can deal yeah, with. Yeah, which I am totally with. I may not agree with Ian Malcolm on his conclusion. Because Malcolm's like, we should, uh, let them die. Yeah, but, but his position and the fact that he is using scientific, rational discussion in order to get to his conclusion is much more my speed than... I, I, again, I understand that some people need a really vivid, bright line. They need to be able to say, past this point, God does not want me to do that, and so I won't. Because they don't have the uh, inclination to get involved in the lengthy, exhausting, stressful debates that are necessary if you say that bright line is not there, God is not involved in this, we have to make this decision. It is a lot of responsibility to say we are making this decision, not God made that decision and we're just doing what he wants us to do. But if we do take God out of the equation, we are effectively destroying him. And then if we do create dinosaurs, if we don't let them out, how can dinosaurs eat man so that woman can inherit the earth? And that's the other reason why Maisie is quite right to let them out. <laughs> Effectively, Colin Trevorrow had been pushing and pushing towards Jurassic World, which is what Jeff Goldblum says at the end. Welcome uh, to Jurassic World and clap and leave. And it's like, dinosaurs among us mm. now. Imagine that. Yeah, no, there aren't elephants running down <laughs> New York High Street. We have ways of keeping the wildlife at bay. We do it quite well. To a degree... There could be a very strong argument, I'm not even going to make it, but there could be a very strong argument for pressing the button anyway, based on, you shouldn't have to decide this in a room that's being filled, like in a building filled with poison gas, watching the dinosaurs die. Mm. That is a poor place to make that decision. Yes. Ultimately, you take away any possibility of it being beyond binary, literally allowing extinction for a dozen impossibly rare species through inaction. But there is also the argument that it's not a binary choice anyway, because as is also said a couple of times in this film, the genie is already out of the bottle. You can kill all the dinosaurs, you can't erase the technology. The knowledge of how to recreate them exists. It's not going anywhere. If you let And you also dinosaur, just sold a whole bunch to a bunch of billionaires who have the resources to that. replicate them. I don't them. think they took them away though, I think they're all still in. Oh no, they were put on, they, they were put into crates and well, driven away. Go. All but, the billionaires got their uh, raptors and 
that sort of comes back in six, but nowhere near as much as you'd expect. Okay, so some dinosaurs have already left the premises. Mm -hmm. The technology to start the cloning process from scratch already exists elsewhere. Let's not forget Isla Sauna, even though everyone else even has. Even though everyone else has. So even if, even if you let every dinosaur in this building right now die, you don't achieve the thing that allowing them to die should achieve that you are arguing for at this point. So don't do it. Also, if you're not going to press the button, it is then your responsibility to track down all the dinosaurs mm -hmm. and murder them. Yeah. Because that's the decision you've made. And murder all the people who know about the technology for making them. Blow up every building that has equipment that is geared towards Nuke is La Sauna from orbit. Absolutely. Only way to be sure. And even you're simply setting this shit back because people will still try to replicate it. You cannot make it go away and therefore all you are achieving if you let this batch of dinosaurs die is murdering this batch of dinosaurs. This is a ridiculous exaggeration by the way. You don't, you aren't obligated by not pressing a button to go and murder everybody. But if you're reducing it to a dichotomy, mm. following up with that particular ethical choice would at least be like we have to alert the authorities that these dinosaurs are here so that the authorities can close in and kill them. Yes, indeed. If your point is, we cannot coexist with dinosaurs. And to me, while I just made that argument about the whole bright line thing, I do have a bright line, and it comes down to if your choices are life or death, you can do more with life than you can with death. If you go with death, that's all you can do. You that's can't it. come back from that. That is the end of that sentence. That's what I mean about expanding it from just a binary choice. Yeah. You can have make more decisions when there's life exactly. than you can when there's only death. Precisely. Now, last thing on film five. Everyone really wants to let the dinosaurs die through inaction. That would be the majority of people I've heard talk about this film. The phrase playing God is often invoked outside of this, this film series and associated with science specifically science that is positioned as bad or irresponsible science, which, by the way, the Jurassic films are absolutely full of. You could have ethical quandaries for days talking about the, the things that they do with these animals that they probably shouldn't. Also, God's not very scientific. He didn't experiment for 300 years before then taking five days to get the world right. Especially when a lot of that science is in favour of accruing funds and money. It's not about just to see if we can do it. It's not about we can help people. It's we can get, we're going to make a fortune with this place. Now, I feel that playing God as a phrase is loaded in favor of people who want to trust everything to a benevolent and all-powerful force that we cannot have any effect over, unlike nature, which we, uh, as humans, have proved that we can have an effect on. Think about this, folks. Doesn't standing by and letting living people or creatures, in this case, suffer and die also equate to playing God? If people suffer and die in the world, philosophically speaking, if there is a benevolent force up there, he's allowing it to happen. Which means, he's playing God by not stepping in. So what is playing human? And can't we make playing human, rescuing others from danger, and taking as much responsibility as is required? We will see you after the music to talk about film six.
blue. You had a baby. That's impossible. Hey, girl. You look just like your mother. has not been unleashed. We made a terrible mistake. The doomsday clock might be about out of time. If our world's gonna survive, what matters is what we do now. I could use your expertise. You coming or what? A baby raptor? I made a promise we would bring her home. You made a promise to a dinosaur. Yeah. Why? Everybody hold on to somebody. That can't be right. What is that? Biggest carnivore the world has ever seen. Run! See? Not so bad. Okay, so film six, Jurassic World Dominion. Full spoilers from this point onwards. So at the time of recording, it has been seven years since the Irex of Jurassic World and four years since the Iraptor of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. But it has only been three years since Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and I realised some way in why this sixth film felt a little underwhelming, because it was actually that movie which was the one to beat, both in terms of giant dragon spectacle and in terms of heart. Of course, it's worth reminding us all that King of the Monsters only gleaned a pathetic 42% freshness on Rotten Tomatoes. Despite its brilliance, the original Jurassic Park got 92%, which means 8% of critics in 1993 were barking mad. The Lost World, four years later, got 53%. The third film, four more years later, got 49%. Jurassic World, after a 14-year gap, garnered 71%, proving the power of nostalgia even over critics. And Fallen Kingdom got 47%, so way lower than 71 in 2018, pleasing less than half of critics. However, The lowest of the bunch at the time of recording is film six, currently sitting ugly with 30%. That's even worse than King of the Monsters. But obviously the King of the Monsters thing exists to illustrate. Sometimes the critics can just be off. Off in terms of that a film might really have a lot more to offer than just, meh, it's just dragon fights. And there is a loose rhyming scheme with the two halves of this sextet of movies. The first movie in each trilogy is where the well-intentioned park goes wrong. The second is all about greedy businessmen trying to salvage a fortune from this failed experiment. And the third seems to be powered by a crumpled, lonely Alan Grant pining for Ellie Sattler, the amazing lady that got away. That is present and correct here as well. We just watched Jurassic Park 3 as a, re- as a refresher and a reminder. We've now seen, I've now seen all six of the films this week. Sharon still hasn't seen film six. So the short of it is, in this plot, that the dinosaurs have been roaming the Earth for, I don't know, a few years now? I think? 
A mysterious new plague is affecting the crops. Uh, the crops! My god, the crops! And our heroes work out that Biosyn are somehow responsible. She's holding her head in her hands, which usually signifies the end of her interview. The stage is set for a dual investigation as Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler return for the first time since 2001. Or, I suppose, as much as Ellie was really in that uh, Jurassic Park 3. Which is to say, she was probably allowed to film in her own house in her own clothes. <laughs> I will be in your Jurassic Park movie, but I'm in my gym jams. Okay. <laughs> and they will be mine. I am not going to be inflicted upon by any wardrobe department Yikes. and you're not brushing my hair <laughs> oh she had lovely hair oh, yeah, I said yeah. she just gets up in the morning and it's just lovely automatically exactly, yeah. uh, they are joined by Ian Malcolm who appeared briefly in film 5 but that was the first time he'd been in there since 1997's The Lost World meanwhile Owen and Claire uh, yeah they've been living off the grid in a little uh, log cabin uh, as unofficial surrogate parents to Maisie who is troubled by her own mysterious origins and is started acting out like she's uh riding off on her bike and not coming back for ages. So, like Jurassic Park 3, yeah. we have a set of parents who are trying to deal with a child yeah. who is more involved with these dinosaurs than they really need to be. She keeps running away, and um, Claire says, you know, oh, you can run away if you want, but, uh, you know, tea's ready for you when you want to come back. That's wilder people. I know, dinosaurs. but she's married to Sam Neill. <laughs> and Sam Neill's all, I don't want anything to do with this kid. In the meantime, Blue has somehow spawned a baby raptor and is living in the woods nearby. I don't know whether Blue found them or they found Blue. I feel like Owen found Blue and was like, let's set up shop here. And Blue was like, oh, God, my old roommate. <laughs> Fine, I'll move in next door. Yeah. And yeah, Bloom's, uh, Blue is spying on them and roaming around in the woods. There is, uh, Blue is quite an exceptional animal, I will say. Uh, Maisie, when she meets uh, the youngster, names it Beta, which obviously will drive a lot of boys on the internet mad. Well, that should have been Blue's name. Yeah, but uh, uh, Owen changed Beta to Blue, so because it's... she has a blue streak down her side. Well, yeah. But also because he took a shine to Blue and wanted to differentiate her from the rest of them. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's a, it's a tense scene because Blue, like, the, 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 the kid turns up and Maisie's like, eh, a raptor, okay... Here's a piece of toast. And then Blue turns up and goes, toast, toast. And she's like, I haven't got anything else. Yes, we know. <laughs> but luckily, Biosyn turn up to wreck the day by kidnapping Maisie and Beta and take them back to Biosyn headquarters, sending Owen and Claire off on a sprawling, globe-trotting child hunt. And when I say sprawling, what I mean is they go to a place they don't need to go to and spend ages there having action scenes. Okay. It's like Morocco or Tangiers or something. Remember when I said about the whole raptors chasing what the red dot site points at? That's where that happens. Nothing's interesting there. They're chasing... There's a point where one of their friends, I don't know who it is even anymore, um, holds up an iPad with, like, I don't know what his name is, Hugo Mainframe or something. It's a giant newspaper article on the iPad that says, Hugo Mainframe arrested. The person holding up the iPad goes, this is Hugo Mainframe. And I'm like... I can read, okay, but that's how the script goes, folks. They show and tell, and then they tell some more. So, Sharon, what questions do you have on this one? Before I go into the bit-by-bit -bit stuff, I might be able to cover a lot of the bit-by-bit -bit stuff with what you ask. Okay. Like, what would you be naturally curious about? So, some of this... Just gonna um, drink my root beer. We, some of this we did cover a little bit. <sighs> 
Oh, and we were talking about... Wow, she forgot the name of the film so we saw yesterday. I can't remember all these subtitles, and I have no idea which ones are listed with numbers and which ones have names. Also, if it's a fallen kingdom, who is the king? That's a very good point. I think we've already established the T-Rex was a queen. Yep. Maisie is coming back. Yep. How does her character develop, and how does the actress manage the extension of the role? Um, because she's a major MacGuffin in the movie, and the movie makes a huge deal about her special blood. But she herself doesn't really... Well, no, she does. She, she goes on a voyage of discovery to understand why they want her specifically. Right, but it's all about her finding out things about other people's attitudes to her rather than her exploring anything about herself. When she gets to Biosyn, Dr. Henry Wu uh, says, uh, okay, here... Him again. Yeah, watch this video. And it's herself playing with a little dinosaur in 1986. And uh, he's like, Charlotte, oh, she was so wonderful. And then it cuts to uh, Charlotte later in life as a, uh, uh, an adult female scientist talking about uh, the uh, in-gen experimentation that's going on with uh, the beginning of the creation of Jurassic Park. Actually, no, this would have been way after Jurassic Park. Mm. But like, she's laying down theories about genetic this, that, and the others. And then she gets up from the computer and reveals that she is pregnant. And the, Maisie's like, whoa, shit! Is that me? And it's like, yes, but I thought I was a clone of her. You were. And what does that mean? It means she replicated on her own. And I'm like, okay, well, I imagined um, something like a, a, an in-womb surrogacy would have taken place anyway, since that's well, usually where you... Yeah, yeah, but the it's like it's stated in the, first, in the previous movie mm -hmm. that the gap between her being killed and Maisie being born is quite substantial. She faked her death in a car crash, but actually lived no! way longer. No! You're <laughs> kidding me! Oh, my God. I mean, okay. And, and Ben Lockwood got amnesia and forgot all this. That, so Are you being honest? Are you? Is that the truth? I don't know about the amnesia thing. Everything else I said before that is... is that, this right. is like when you said uh, uh, the, the woman <laughs> is about to get killed by her pet cemetery kid, and she's like, don't you take me to that pet cemetery! <laughs> And then you started laughing, and I went, no, that's actually what she says. Oh, my God. Right, okay. Okay, now so, ask some questions. All of the underpinning that we personally have already dismissed... I've been sitting on this for several days now. ...about um, clones are definitely people. Uh-huh. Um, and we need to not be having this discussion anymore. Uh -huh. um, and while Lockwood's daughter may not have been Maisie's actual mother... Genetically, at least, she's she's close enough to being that, and in terms of the age difference, might as well be that. Strictly speaking, she's her sister. But if we do get to see Charlotte, like with young Maisie, like yeah. going, "Oh, you're but, so cute!" Okay, so it's like so, she definitely so was she around for her birth. Born and was and bonded. Right, that's it. She's her mom. She, she, Maisie is Lockwood's granddaughter. That's it. End of discussion. No, but she has special blood. Doesn't matter because she Doesn't can matter. she can replicate asexually. But no. No, no, no. It turns out no. Blue can replicate no. asexually. No. She's a very special no. rat. She no. can do it. Right. She does it. She can replicate she like a sea slug. Right. And, there is a difference. And and little Beta is also born of a woman who was able to infertilize herself. There is a difference between parthenogenesis <sighs> and scientists doing something in a lab with a test tube. Uh-huh. It is possible. What you mean? What I mean? Ultimately, I assume that what the uh, mother Charlotte did was take a single cell from her own body and effectively engineer it into a sperm cell to become pregnant well, by herself. What they do at the moment when they're cloning. This is my 
armchair science, which may as well be all the science in Jurassic. What they do at the moment when they're cloning, and this is, I'm throwing my mind back to the last time I read something about this, so if anything that I'm about to say is wrong, I do apologise. Was it Dolly the Sheep was cloned? Yeah, that was ages ago. In they the 90s? Moved, yeah, they have moved on from there now, but basically they take... Well, Colin Trevorrow is very excited about that prospect. Mm. They take an egg that's already fertilised, they take out the DNA... Um, that's in there already. A switcheroo. And, yeah, and then they uh, recode it or reinsert. So you don't need to turn that cell into a sperm cell if it's, it's kind of underway already? It's a fertilised egg, exactly. Right. But they replace the existing uh, DNA combo with the uh, one-creature DNA that they've put to one side and, and, as a result, what grows is ostensibly supposed to be a perfect copy, but there's also the fact that there is some mitochondrial DNA in the external casing of the already fertilised egg. However, if it was Charlotte's egg in the first place, then the mitochondrial DNA is going to be hers as well. So that that would still be consistent. But it would have to be done in a Petri dish, and then she and and like in vitro fertilization would have to go ahead first, and then uh, the embryo would have to be. But that's honestly what I figured was was going to be the case. That's not the same thing as she asexually reproduces by herself. Well, she uses science to do what the animals can do. That's not what snails do, okay? <laughs> I've seen those snails. Snails are perverts. Anyway, the meat of it is that Charlotte had a degenerative disease and she wanted her child to have a chance at living without that. So she removed... They hand wave it in the film as she removed all the parts of the DNA that had a genetic disease in them and replaced them with other DNA. It's possible that an original plan was that this was going to be dino DNA, but they dropped the ball on that one. Either way, she was born a better version of her own mum, and science was used to adapt to disease. And one of the key animals that's in the sock drawer of DNA for Blue was Komodo dragon, and they can reproduce asexually. But I think lazy writers know that just saying, oh, you got special blood is a really easy, some might say cheap way of explaining why the scientists are so interested in this person. You know, like the amazing Spider-Man films where Campbell Scott genetically engineered a spider to correspond exactly to his son's DNA. And Harry was just after that special blood. Because just like here, special blood can cure you of dying. Anyway, the big thing that's actually terrifying is that Biosyn, who are run by Campbell Scott... Hmm. Oh my god, no! Don't let him get involved! He's Dodgson. Campbell Scott is Dodgson! We got Dodgson here! No one cares. No, (laughs) this is what I mean by, like, Roland Tembo would have been brought back if they could have. Yeah. And I'm assuming the, uh, the, the studio were like... Could we potentially bring Pete Postlethwaite back with cloning or holograms? <laughs> <laughs> and they were told no. Yes, good. So, uh, yeah, we got Dodgson here. And he's like, we're really trying to help people. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to deal with heart disease, brain disease. Biosyn are all about trying to save lives. Not, it's not really about dinosaurs. It's, it's genetic tampering. Dinosaurs are kind of a byproduct of that. I say genetic tampering. Genetic engineering. Uh, but, yeah, the actual problem is that Wicked Dodgson has been, like, like the first thing that happens is uh, uh, a couple of farm kids are just tending to their farm in Texas, and then this big cloud forms on the horizon, and loads of locusts start swarming down on their farm, and they run away from the locusts going, ah, and they're huge. They're, like, wetter-sized, huge locusts. I was like, oh, fuck. 
because the, the animals are out in the world, is this now producing parasites that feed off the dinosaurs or came with the dinosaurs in their DNA or something hand wavy that means that because the dinosaurs are out in the world, there's other things that come with the dinosaurs. Mm. But no, it's just that this evil company is sending the locusts out and they eat everything apart from biosyn branded crops, which they ignore so that biosyn can have the gamut on corn and wheat in the world. And I'm like, that's a pretty good James Bond villain thing from a long time ago. I was going to say, hasn't he done that? <laughs> on Her Majesty's Secret Service, it's yeah. about sort of spreading diseases to, to crops, but he, he doesn't have planned Blofeld brand crops. Is he just like He's just like holding the world to ransom, otherwise I'll eradicate wheat. Right, okay. Wouldn't bother me, obviously. Mm. Um, so, effectively, this is a dinosaur film, mostly about big locusts. Right. Okay. And I think a lot of people are complaining about that fact, and they're right to do so. So, am I right in thinking, then, that biosyn is... This is what I mean about Colin Trevorrow's fixation on the genetic side of this, yeah. and what could be done with that, as opposed to, I thought we were going to go see a dinosaur movie. Mm. So, if... Is Biosyn the company that Dodson was... One assumes. ...doing the, the industrial espionage? Yeah, for? he has the Barbasol can on his shelf, just in case you didn't know. And it's like, how did he get that? Doesn't matter. Same, same... Why would you keep evidence around for 20-odd years? It's his special shelf. Years? He also has Alan Grant's Raptor Talon from the original. That's more of a kind of a, ah, ah, remember this? And there's a one point when... Jeff Goldblum's going ballistic and eventually he just points at, at the guy he's going crazy at and goes, Dodson, and then leaves. Just so the audience has been told repeatedly, it's this guy. Yeah. And if they don't remember him, that doesn't mean anything. But that means that there's a direct line between Hammond not paying Dennis Nedry enough mm -hmm. and this film having to exist. Yeah. But, I mean, it feels like Dodgson would have gotten to any other disgruntled uh, in-gen employer mm. eventually. Yeah. But he probably needed Nedry because Nedry had the fucking finger on the pulse of how to kill Jurassic Park. Right. Is This is Cameron all based on Scott. assumption. Campbell Scott. Campbell Scott, sorry. Is Campbell Scott actually a, a scientist with Biosyn? Uh, he, uh, he, he runs like Biosyn. He's basically like the... type. Uh, he's the Elon Musk of Biosyn. Seems kind of unlikely that he would have been going out doing his own dirty work, even in 1993. I don't know. I feel like Elon Musk was probably out schmoozing Nedries with pies. Mm, possibly. Okay. That uh, seems highly unlikely. We're talking about a Jurassic here. Yeah, that's very Let's good. just go ahead and say, yes. Yes, yes he was. <laughs> Maybe it was a fledgling startup company at that point. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what Nedry stole mm. for him enabled him to become the biosyn that we know and love today. And we know he recovered the Barbasol can because he has it. It can refrigerate the embryos for up to 48 hours. Unless it's sealed in mud, in which case, 48 million years. It feels honestly like Dodgson was sent by someone higher up. Maybe he was, but now he's in the he's big in chair. No one ever goes into it. It doesn't matter. He's just it a villain that they could pluck out of the past. I don't even know why I asked. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the uh, Ellie Sattler is, starts investigating the crop damage because she's a paleobotanist, which means she's interested in, in crops, which gets her in the game. And then she's like, oh, this seems like it's going to be to do with genetic tampering. I need my best friend, Alan Grant, who I haven't seen for years and years and years. So she turns up in his tent and goes, hey, Alan. And he's like, Ellie, oh my God. 
and then like rushes over to the side of the uh, a filing cabinet where he's got a picture of him and Ellie and like grabs it and puts it in his back pocket and he's like I don't love you still after all these years and she's like I know you do but no it's Laura Dern walks back into his life like a ray of sunshine and I'm like I know how you feel Alan <laughs> and there's this sadness about kind of both of them it's like it never happened and it's been 30 something years now you know like Toy Story 4 in fact, very like Toy Story 4 now that I think about it. And Alan asks her all the right things to set them up for later. And he's like, how are the kids? And she's like, they're all grown up, all grown up. I'm on my own in the house now. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, mo- a kidless mom. They're all off living their own lives. And how about your husband, doobly-doo? He's done. He's over. Where There's nothing more going on with that. And I'm like, oh, okay. So either that's just a really lazy in, just to set them up to be together at the end, or one of them's going to have to sacrifice themselves for, for the other one. It's not that kind of movie. It's just the first one. And then they go off investigating uh, big crickets and end up in a very X-Files-like scenario where they're sort of sneaking into a, a, a biosyn lab full of corn and the, the Alan has to sort of reach into the corn where the locust is nesting and then somehow an alarm goes off and all the locusts start flying around and they're like, ah, it's in my hair! And then they run to the, like, the, the airlock to get out and it's actually kind of funny and silly how they're sort of, ah! even though we would all be doing the same fucking thing at the same time. And then, like, eventually the door opens and they fall out. They're they're not action heroes, which is fine. They were never supposed to be. But they are definitely the best thing in this. It's just, it's really pleasant seeing them on screen again. They have a sort of reassuring quality to them. And they actually still maintain genuine chemistry. Mm. Yeah, well, they are both, like, top-notch actors. Mm. And uh, Ian is again in this film, and he's working for Biosyn, but in a kind of uh, I'm investigating Biosyn kind of way. Like he's their resident t- chaotician with tenure, and uh, he has an assistant named Ramsey, who's uh, you know very smart young kid, well to do, very polite. He is also working against Biosyn, and uh, he sort of helps Alan and uh, Ellie get to where they need to go. He's like, right now, I'm going to show you to the next part of the tour. These elevators here definitely don't go to those elevators there. Those lead down to the lab. And then he leaves and Alan's like, oh, this is so great. Now we can go down to the lab and he'll never suspect a thing. And it's like, dude, he told you. (laughs) Uh, either, Either way, everyone in this film is stupid. Everyone says everything out loud. The script is fucking boneheaded. And... You know when I said in in, the, in Top Gun Maverick that everyone seems to lay down the right uh, things for the dramatic tension of the next few scenes? It's that, but it's not serving dramatic tension. It's just saying, well, this is this and that is that, so that the plot is made abundantly clear to us. Mm. It's just exposition dumps. Even if it's like, I'm going to inform upon my character, Ellie, I'm lonely as fuck. He never actually says that. He never actually says that. They never have a really good conversation. Let me say, Ellie, when she first turns up, is deliberately wearing her pink shirt. And it's like, just in case you didn't know that that was Laura Dern, because she's older, has a few more wrinkles, and her voice is a little deeper now. Like, we have to put her in that... Like, she has to get out of a Jeep in the same way as she stood up and, like... When there was a brachiosaur to look at. Put your head between your knees. <laughs> yes, ma'am. It's very kind of remember that bit from the first film. I'm like, you were doing that with the whole of Jurassic World. This whole franchise can't just run on nostalgia for film one. Can it? But I mean, it does. That's why people are paying a billion dollars every time to go back and see 
some ingredients they've already tasted before rearranged into yet another of the same identical kind of story. Oh, to, uh, to follow up on the whole Maisie thing, uh, Henry Wu, the inscrutable Dr. Wu, actually goes through something of a uh, an arc. I think he goes through the biggest arc of anyone in the film because he's gone from just like a, a technician who worked for InGen to the mad scientist who's like, it's all mine. I created this dinosaur island in uh, the first Jurassic World to, you can't just try and militarize these things. It's not going to work the way you think, you greedy bastard, in the second one. To the third one, he's like, what have I done? I need your special blood, Maisie and uh, beta special blood so that I can engineer a special kind of big cricket to go out and effectively uh, wipe out the rest of them with uh, with the genetic disposition towards I don't know what. And then presumably you'll have to invent another bigger cricket to take out the replicating one that you just invented to take out the ones that you were struggling with in the first place. Henry, stop. Just stop. She swallowed the dog to catch the cat. She swallowed the cat to catch the bird. She swallowed the bird to catch the fly. But I don't know why she swallowed that fly. Perhaps she'll die. But um, honestly, the, the locust thing does allow for one of the other big subtexts of this film to, uh, to push through, which is ecological anxiety. As in, we're all feeling the environmental impact right now. As uh, It mainly comes down to the fact that some cogs are moving. That it's that some companies are going. We are going all green. That some people are, are actually acknowledging that there's been a problem for many decades now. Frankly, a uh, couple of centuries, and we need to collectively do something quick because it feels like time is running out. Yeah. And Ian Malcolm is like, yeah, we've uh, uh, fucked ourselves into extinction in this movie, and he's sort of preaching that you know we need to change human thought in order to evolve. Otherwise, we won't. We won't have time to evolve. And again, yeah. Jeff Goldblum's fun to watch on screen. Probably one of the best things in this. He gets to do a bit of a heroic uh, pointy stick throw with some fire on it to distract a, a big dinosaur. Uh, I can't even remember what breed it was. The original Jurassic Park had seven breeds of dinosaur. T-Rex, Velociraptor, Triceratops, Brachiosaurus, Gallimimus, Dilophosaurus, and briefly, Parasaurolophilus. And they were immortalized in the T-Rex scene, the Velociraptor scene, the Dilophosaurus scene, the Triceratops scene. The Gallimimus scene. The Brachiosaur scene. Quality over quantity. Now it's inverted. They are throwing quantity of dinosaurs, specifically carnivores, at the screen so often that I can't tell one from the other. Would Fallen Kingdom have been a better or worse film if the Baryonics had been an Allosaurus? To divert from the whole plot character thing completely, Given that the films leading up to this have all had their own individual blends of practical and CG to varying degrees of success, what kind of balance does this one strike and does it work? In terms of FX, I don't know. I, 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 felt, very, I felt very disinterested in all of the action, principally because when our two teams team up, I forgot to mention that, that Owen and Claire are in this movie. Okay, so can you tell me about them? I just did. Oh. <laughs> Uh, but when the uh, the the, uh, the old war dogs and the young pups, uh, and by the way, Chris Pratt's like his hairline's receding, which happens to us all. Uh, but like he is he doesn't even have any sort of jokey quips anymore. Like we meet him and he's galloping along in the snow on a stallion with a bunch of other cowboys and a Winchester at his side chasing a bunch of dinosaurs so that he can put them I don't know where. But, like, there's... Like, people around the world are sort of dealing with dinosaurs being in the mix now. 
and that's about it. Like uh, we expected that raptors would be murdering kids left, right, and center. That didn't happen. They seem to be mostly harmlessly hiding in the woods and having babies parthenogenically. Which is generally what you would accept, expect wild animals mm. to do. They don't usually voluntarily come near people. Yeah. Unless they've been around people for ages and have worked out that they're not actually all that dangerous and they have food. What I feel happened here is that after Fallen Kingdom, Trevorrow got into the business of writing the sequel and then somehow, unexpectedly, the studio Universal got Sam Neill, Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum to agree to come back for full-on leading roles. So Colin wrote a new storyline for them to be involved with, maybe borrowing some elements from his original draft. This would account for the ridiculously bloated running time. It would also account for why, instead of one magnificent film like The Force Awakens, where the old characters cede the spotlight to the young, we instead have two much shorter, less dramatic, far less impactful stories smushed together and eventually converging. But since it's apparently the last one, at least for a while, what even is this? It's not really a legacy sequel, no torch is past. If anything, Goldblum snatches that torch back and weaponizes it. And yet, even though the plot is a pair of rambling hodgepodges, and the script is dumb as donkey dick, I am still happy to see them on screen. And. Laura Dern in particular gets to deliver some soulful lines that far outstrip what this director and writer is capable of. Uh, and it seems like circumstances are propitious for, uh, for us to highlight uh, some of the most beautiful stars in our life. Um, you know, the top tier sponsors funding our dig as we examine these uh, celluloid fossils, thank you to everyone on our Patreon. And a big shout out to our top tier backers. So that's uh, Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, uh, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Datchler, uh, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, uh, Dan Hepner. Do these movies count as kaiju? I'd, uh, I'd, I'd like to see that. Uh, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, uh, Frankie Punzi, uh, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, uh, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, uh, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, uh, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hario, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius. My personal hero. And then there's Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. All of them. Chaotic, but beautiful. And exemplars to us all, these people choose to believe in supporting one another. Uh, that's radical thinking right there. Uh, there's also a, a lady named Kayla, who's uh, a, a striking new uh, actor of color who sort of knows her shit and she's kind of uh, professional about it all the time. Doesn't really get many funny lines. But there's a point when she's with Owen and she's like, uh, you really like that girl, don't you? Talking about Claire. And he's like, yeah, we're kind of a thing. And she's like, nah, I don't blame you. 
I love those redheads. And I'm like, ooh, this just got interesting. And as it turns out, she's plane sexual, as in she's really into planes. Like when she uh, finds a, a special drone helicopter and Claire's talking to her on the uh, uh, intercom, she goes, okay, cutie. And I'm like, oh, she maybe does like Claire, but she's talking to the helicopter. The sequence where Owen has to jump onto a plane from a motorbike over a cliff and a raptor falls into the sea while it was jumping to get him, but also falls into the sea with his bike, which he has to leave, you know, flying through the air. I was like, is the raptor going to get on the bike? And it didn't happen, but it oh, would have been cool. That would have been cool. But they're, they're flying away on this old, like, freighter aircraft with a twin prop thing. And as it flies off into the distance, I was going, oh, 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 Tailspin. I'd like to see her back in future films. She doesn't have much to do here. But at least she and Ramsey break up the otherwise across-the-board whiteness. I mean, that's what inclusivity is for lazy-ass studios. But, you know, when, when they're together in this giant group of eight, you know, three old, three uh, middle, and uh, two brand new, and dinosaurs are rampaging all over the place, I'm like, well, they're not going to kill the uh, support of colour because then they're just adding these characters just so they can kill them. So those guys are safe. They're not going to kill Alan, Ellie, or Malcolm. They might kill Malcolm. Nah, people would be pissed off at the film. No. And they're not going to kill Claire or Owen or Maisie. So no one's dying during this very long series of action sequences where they're running around in this nature preserve that uh, is just sort of on top of the Biosyn laboratory. And Dodgson predictably gets into a... Uh, he's like, you know, oh, this whole thing's gone to shit. I launched my uh, locusts on fire out into the uh, preserve that I've got, and now they're burning all the trees down. And it's like, why did you make them go on fire and then release them? <laughs> There's a couple of uh, scenarios where uh, Owen and Claire meet new dinosaurs. Like, There's this one with these really pokey, like long fingers that sort of like slashes things. And it's like, hey, we got one of these guys. And then there's another one that sort of swims underwater. And it's like, that guy's an asshole. And it's like, he's a dinosaur. He's just doing what dinosaurs did. That tiger went tiger. <laughs> and then at one point, Claire uh, uh, meets uh, like a blind dinosaur who has more like feathers. And it's not a do you think he saw us, but... Um, <laughs> It, it, we, it illustrates that it's incredibly good at, at slashing at things yeah. and, and it has a long neck or something. They all seem something. to be particularly good at slashing at things. Yeah, and uh, so it's hunting her and she sort of crawls into a bog. And it's it's quite good because it's a quiet bit. But I'm like, uh, there's no tension because Claire is not going to get eaten by this dinosaur thing. Like, why do we still find the original Jurassic Park gripping when we know every frame? Yet these new sequences don't induce any kind of heart because palpitations. Because we're watching Alan and Ellie and the kids and Ian to an extent mm. be gripped by the amazing sights that they see before them. But Bryce Dallas Howard's a good actress. She seemed gripped. Like she was underwater going, mm, while this thing's roaring on the surface just above her head. The point of the first one is that the setup is this is amazing. And it's amazing still now because we're seeing the characters be amazed. Yeah. And therefore, when it turns on them and becomes threatening, it's the loss of that awe that we feel as well as the threat of, of danger, which we know the outcomes. We know who gets hurt and who doesn't. When the characters don't really have any awe to begin with, mm. there's nothing there to lose. If you don't set up your stakes, if you don't have anything that is framed as crucial and important to them that they could potentially end up without 
and you know that it's not going to be character death that's that's what happens. Mm. Death cannot be the only stakes we're playing with out here. Yeah. Because otherwise, what's the point of any of this? Death, as so many people seem determined to ignore for as long as they humanly can, is inevitable for all of us. When people say, oh, you're not going to die, it pisses me off immensely. Because I understand what they mean, but it's a lie. You are. The survival rate for everybody over a long enough timeline drops to zero. Especially if you add dinosaurs to the mix. Especially if you add dinosaurs to the mix. But, but I still stand by my uh, philosophy on letting them live. Well, but you, indeed. But the argument of a, a film is only engaging if I think people are going to get killed is shit. Yeah, that's not... And it is not helped when scriptwriters write films that have no stakes other than people getting killed, and then even less when those people getting killed doesn't mm. happen. The uh, bit with the Raptor and the motorbikes and uh, the plane felt like previs, as in, like, this is an action sequence we've mandated for this movie. It's mm. it's not well set up, and as most previs stuff isn't. Yeah. But we were watching, of all things, The Lost World last night, and we were thoroughly gripped by the sequence where they're hanging off the edge of a cliff inside of uh, uh, an armoured personnel carrier, and the glass starts cracking. I find three of the four characters imperiled in that scenario to be thoroughly irritating. Julianne Moore, Vince Vaughn, and that gymnastics kid. I like Ian Malcolm. But I still, and so did Willow, found that sequence with the, oh God, moving her hand, to be thoroughly gripping. I think when it comes down to it, it's not even specifically liking the characters. It's just when you set up a really good, tense action sequence that has an impact. Mm. And most of Trevorrow's action sequences don't. Yeah. But there's, I mean, there's other ways that stakes can be brought in, but you're right, that is a really good example of the 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 actors don't want to fall, oh, the actors, the characters don't want to fall out of the people carrier and mm. be smashed on the rocks below. Well, Bryce does Howard didn't want to be eaten by that, do you think he saw us? Yeah, but she knew it wasn't going to happen. Mm. Um, but, like, one of the reasons why Fallen Kingdom works better for me than any of the, the other sequels is because part of the stakes in that is the potential for the denial of Maisie's humanity. Mm. Yeah. But luckily, as it turns out, she's... Uh, her idea of I'm not me, I'm her, gets switched to she was my mother and she loved me. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. And uh, my contention for how we treat clones in movies and how we treat robots in movies is because this is analogous to real life. Not because of clones, but in real life there exist situations where we are asked, even as just customers at a restaurant, can I treat this person like they're not even a person and get away with it with no comeuppance. And because in a lot of cases the answer is, yes, you could do that. That puts the onus of how do we treat people on us as people. That's why the whole clone argument, robot argument will be like, well, they're just robots. It doesn't matter. We can we can treat them like however we want. She's just a clone. She hasn't got any real memory. She's not real. They're just the lowest end paid workers who are pretty much in indentured servitude. You don't have to treat them like people. That's what the hand wave is. And that's why I will always, always come on the side of the people who are potentially going to be treated horrendously. Mm. It's an underdog story every time. Yeah. But honestly, although... What you're describing is how Maisie's past turns out to have been. That is how she is introduced to us in the first place. Mm. That is what she has grown up believing she is. So effectively, what you do there is you wipe out 
two thirds of her character development from Fallen Kingdom. I well know. done. Well done, Colin. I know. Good job. Special blood, though. Mm. Yeah. And effectively, what you're saying is we do have to treat her like a person because look, she had a mum and she was born normally like the rest of us, and she was like bonded with her mum normally like the rest of us. So you are shitting on the idea that even if she is a clone who was effectively grown in a test tube and then implanted in a surrogate who had nothing to do with her, mm. should we not have, have treated her like a person under those circumstances? Yes, Colin, yes, we should. For the reasons I just stated. This is why I figured you don't need to see this film, because all I need to do is to voice this principle to you, and you already know how you feel. Yeah, yeah. It just unpicks most of what I liked about Fallen Kingdom. I still like Fallen Kingdom. We may as well ignore this third film, because, frankly, Jurassic World ignores films two and three anyway, so if they can do their own fucking headcanon, so can we. Indeed. In the same way that I can ignore Alien 3, in the same way that I can ignore The Rise of Skywalker... There's a big fight at the end where they're like, oh my god, uh, Gigantosaurus just showed up and he's going to eat me. And I'm like, okay, so three, two, one for T-Rex. Oh, the T-Rex turned up. That was a big surprise because it happened at the end of the first one and it happened at the end of the first Jurassic World and it happened with Blue in uh, the fifth one. And the uh, T-Rex turns up and, oh my god, he's da- she's down. This T-Rex is down because the Gigantosaurus is much bigger. But then another dinosaur turns up and then it turns out that the T-Rex was only faking and then the T-Rex effectively gets the other dinosaur with the long swipey fingers to kneel down behind the Gigantosaurus and then pushes her over it. Gives her a wedgie and a dead leg and a a dreaded rear admiral. But all of these dinosaur fights are going to feel underwhelming to me now if they're not accompanied by Steve Austin's ring music. I I did too well. (laughs) But again, like uh, if we go back to what I said at the beginning of this sixth film... King of the Monsters. Mm. You've got King Ghidorah versus Godzilla with uh, Rodan and Mothra, uh, you know, tag teaming in and out. It's fucking astonishing. And that film makes me cry. So Universal say that this is the last Jurassic film to which I say my sweet dick. It is not the last Jurassic film. Why would you say something like that? The box office gross. Film one made a billion dollars over time because it got re-released repeatedly. And that was on $63 million budget, which is pittance these days, even adjusted for inflation. Film two made $618 million on 73. So it cost 10 million more and it made just over half as much. Just over half as much. Film three made even less, 368 on 93 million. So it's going up and up and up. It now costs 30 million more than the first one to make. See, those first three, Law of Diminishing Returns in action. Writ large. Uh, Film four made 1.6 billion based on nostalgia. uh, And it was on a budget of 150 million, which, while expensive for a Jurassic film, is still relatively low stakes for uh, like the big blockbusters, which all cost north of 200 million. Like, I could probably say that something like Jack the Giant Slayer cost more than that. It probably didn't, but it would surprise you how expensive some real turds are. I was right. Jack the Giant Slayer did cost 200 million, and so did Oz the Great and Powerful. Well, fuck me in the face. With 400 million dollars, you could have fixed the water in Flint, Michigan. Film 5 made 1.3 billion, so that's 0.3 billion less than uh, The Lost World, on, again, even more, 187 million. So these are costing more and more. This sixth film cost 2 million less than Film 5, 
185 million. We are far too close to its release date, which was just at this time a few days ago, to know how much it's going to make. My guess is less than 1.3 billion. So it's again the law of diminishing returns, which means people are already kind of tired of dinosaurs. And my ranking would be one, an enormous gulf, then five, which I like, then a pretty big gap, then two, the lost world, six. Dominion, which I keep wanting to say Jurassic World domination. (laughs) Then four, the original Jurassic World, which I find deeply cynical. And last is three, which seems lazy and rushed. And then the coda of the film comes. Like They've they've gotten out of this uh, Biosyn reservation. All the staff have fled or died, and the power's out. And Dodson uh, is, like, wandering around near the Dilophosaurus paddock, and he's like, wait a minute, what are you? Like, he doesn't know his dinosaurs. And he's like, this seems awfully familiar. Yes, yes, it does. Uh, And the coda is, it shows juxtaposition of many uh, dinosaurs with real-world animals. So, like, pteranodons flying with flocks of pigeons, just sort of in the sunset. Uh, You know, shots of uh, Blue Planet-style shots of of whales underwater, and then a uh, mosasaur is just slowly soaring past them. And uh, elephants are sort of uh, silhouetted on the Serengeti, and there's a brontosaurus uh, walking alongside, and it's... the coda delivered is coexist or perish. Rather than the philosophy of these creatures require our absence, now they're in among us, we absolutely have to get on, or it's going to be symptomatic of our own inability to de-escalate conflict so that we can work together to save each other. And as much as I dislike the existence of this wanky trilogy, I can't fault Trevorrow's philosophy here i like the coexist or we're all fucked mentality as opposed to we've all got to go off on our own it's every man for himself and granted the best thing to do would be to have a governing body in charge of rounding up all these dinosaurs and making sure that they get a secure future in a protected part of the world the symbolism of coexist or perish as a test for humanity is the important thing Now, I think, even though they've said this is the last one, that the Jurassic series does need to go away until the 2030s. I say this a lot about things that just keep getting sequels, including Star Wars. Just let us miss it. Let us miss it for a while. Don't don't, Don't do the thing which is obvious that you're going to do next, which is, how about a Jurassic TV series? I was just thinking precisely that. Because, I mean, that's what they'll do, because everything's got to have a TV show now. Ideally, too. Hmm. When Jurassic comes back, it needs a new and focused godparent that isn't Trevorrow at all. Stop giving Colin Trevorrow these ludicrously big tent poles to screw up. You waste your production time if you're going to fire him eventually, and everything ends up rushed. Let him direct his own weird, inhuman characters and just keep remaking things like The Book of Henry for the rest of his fucking career. I think what I want to see most of all is other films that have dinosaurs in them. They will occasionally crop up in King Kong films, but it feels like just as cars are not universally attached only to Universal's other big franchise, general audiences wouldn't turn up to the tune of a billion dollars for just any old cars that are neither fast nor furious. Similarly, it feels like anything with dinosaurs in it would be accused of just copying Jurassic 
park and world. So I think we need to get past that and encourage other car, dinosaur, or wizard school related films, since these respective franchises seem exhausted now. New, fresh hotness is needed. So we will see you next week for yet another Marvel. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Dino, Dino School's, School's Out. out.